0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined, as ever, the other half of your host,
1: Gabriel Krauser.
0: So Gabriel, before the show, you informed me that you were low energy, and I believe that's because you had to deal with an enormous amount of the South African government today, which is a fate I would not wish upon any of my worst enemies.
1: Yeah, I don't even, I don't. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it was, <laughs> the thing is, it was kind of better than it's been sometimes. So so it wasn't like, sometimes you have those, you know, the time I went on a ride around with the police in Yeovil because all my stuff was stolen and we were looking for the bad guys. And instead in Hillbrow, they arrested some poor foreigner who was, selling crack on the side of the road, tackled him into the ground, put him in the car next to me so that I'm like next to this, like sweating, sweating, desperately like almost crying but like keeping it very manly together guy. (laughs) He's like sweat going through the rock of crystal he's holding in his hand and it's starting to like ooze down onto the floor and then from there they drop him off at the station and then take me on a ride along where they stop by every known drug dealer in Yeovil to go and collect brown envelopes and they say (laughs) what do you think's in there sonny boy and I say I don't want to know I just want my clothes and then they say it's just perfume <laughs> that Why reminds do you think me we of, smell so good.
0: <laughs> I think oh you know, I'm sorry, but you could at least have a little shame. Anyway, um what that reminds me of a story. I think that there was a car launch, car launch um investigation into like recovering lost cars or something. And one of the victims of uh, of a hijacking was in a very similar situation to you where uh, the cops were like, okay, no, we're going to go look for your car. And they put him in the back of the car. And then they went to investigate murders and people being shot in the face and all sorts of horrible things just with him sitting in the back. And he was like, I have saw things that I can't possibly unsee. Why did they take me to do that? <laughs> it's, just, my... just... Yeah, no, it's,
1: it's an African police service, man. <laughs> it's a, it can be a real education. I mean, the, my favorite one was was, how did it go? is from from france our old boss who uh was was part of the police flying squad and he mm. just happened to be driving around and he sort of saw this hijacking or he just immediately got the call and so he sort of got involved and the the people hijacked a taxi or they hijacked someone a, a normal car but then they realized that it was a taxi driver and they and they sort of pulled over on the side of the highway and ran towards the police with their hands up, begging to be arrested. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that says something about this country. You don't mess with the taxi
1: drivers. You really, I you're mean, really hoping you're begging to be arrested and to return the car and to say very sorry. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I and I mean this
0: seriously. If the taxi drivers got together, they could overthrow the government. In Absolutely. Probably a month. Absolutely. and <laughs> it's it's crazy to think uh, you know some countries it's like controlled by the mafia some countries controlled by like some kind of sugar baron some countries by oil moogles we're controlled by taxi drivers which, well or not we're, controlled we're, we're but, not, we but we have a lot of, yeah we could be we could be we're right? not, we're not big, in like,
1: control we're out of control yeah because this they realized that it would totally be a waste of, of
0: time and money to try yes. and run this place.
1: <laughs> no, it's not, it's not worth the effort at the moment. <laughs>
0: Speaking of things that are uh, difficult countries to run, uh, <laughs> that's a good thing. Okay,
1: nice, nice. <laughs> I think I see where you're going. Take us a step further there, young Nick.
0: <laughs> uh, the French have just had an election. And um, I, uh, the, uh, this election was sort of summed up for me by a tweet I saw, which is, I think, one of my favorite comments on the way that French politics work. And it was a series of tweets and this person said, look, you know, we all know that the election is going to be, this was way before the first round. We all know the election is going to be between Macron and Le Pen. And if Le Pen wins, you know, the French, they like to riot. But if Le Pen wins, there's going to be an extra special riot and they're going to get their special rioting boots out. And then the news crews will go down to the riot where everything is being set on fire and the country is in danger of being torn apart and they will ask the protesters, and none of them would have voted.
1: (laughs) I think that kind of sums up
0: the wackiness of French politics quite a lot. So, of course, um, uh, France has its two-round presidential election. uh, They've just had it. Um, Firstly, and this is my question to you, Gabriel, on a kind of technical note, how do you feel about two-round presidential elections? I must say, I think I'm kind of a fan.
1: I think there's a lot to be said for it. It's not perfect. Most poetically, there's this aphorism. I wish I could remember who it's by. Maybe Claude Levi-Strauss. That if you want to close a door very quietly, you need two hands. One on the handle to pull and another to push back gently. Uh, I think if you say that in Italian, it rhymes and whatever... But I think it's a beautiful image because everyone who um, has sort of tiptoed away f- or towards a bedroom, you know, a child sleeping and you don't want to wake them up, whatever it is, knows that feeling of kind of grabbing it with both hands and pushing and pulling. And and, and there, therein lies a, a, a metaphorical argument for for two-party systems. The, the deep tension that I'm a fan of as a radical centrist is the one between uh, a side that wants government to be bigger and a side that wants government to be smaller. I think that that really is a question without a final answer. Um, so, you know, hot libertarians think the final answer is just it needs to be smaller, as small as possible. And and socialist types want it to be bigger, as big as possible. And And I think that it's a question that keeps needing to be asked. Um, at the moment in South Africa, I totally think it needs to be smaller. Uh, but I but I can see a, a future 50 years down the line where it's too small. Uh in fact, maybe not 50 years. Nick and I on the Daily French show today were talking about this amazing case where the South African <laughs> yes. military is being besieged in Pretoria by sort of squatters and and uh hoodlums. And I the can see that Cable thieves who've stolen the electricity and the water. And so now the army is like trying to figure out how to be self-sufficient in Pretoria.
0: Right. Not on the front (laughs) lines, not in in the jungles of northern Mozambique. No, no.
1: (laughs) And solar panels. You know, how do we go off grid in the middle of the capital of our own country? (laughs) How do we do no supply lines in the middle of the supply line sort of HQ nexus? It's an amazing question to ask. And I think it comes right after the question, is South Africa really a country? Uh, you know, uh, uh, well, tried it appears to
0: have a, an armed force, but maybe that's because everyone knows that if Zimbabwe invaded, the taxi drivers
1: would take care of them. Exactly. We'd be fine. But And that's my point, is that the natural impulse is to say, well, can't we hire some, can't we privatize, can't we get ADT to protect the army base? <laughs> right and and i and I know some people who really want to go down that go down that rabbit hole even further than we 're already down it, uh, and I do think that leads you to a place where there 's not enough government where safety, which really must be guaranteed for all for for a state to have any claim to constitutional democracy. Uh, there must be a real robust, not perfect and not invincible, but a real robust level of safety that 's guaranteed to all and and privatizing everything doesn 't get you there so I can see a world in which you need to make the case for more government in south Africa anyway that 's just to say the left the left right hand in that sense I think is it 's nice to have both those hands on the door, some pushing some pulling it, and the upshot should be at least the way the American project was was designed quite specifically had this in mind in the Federalist Papers, that the upshot of that kind of perpetual competition is going to be that whenever the government is spending money, you've got the best chance that it's spending it well. Right. If you've always got guys saying spend more and you've always got guys saying spend less, like the thing that's really going to settle it is like, well, in this case, we'll spend because it's good. It doesn't always work out that way. It seldom works out that way. Yeah. But that's it, why. <laughs> it, that's possibly but, the but,
0: one thing that it hasn't quite managed to do. It's done a lot of good
1: things that's the theory and i and i think in france's case the 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 idea of having two rounds is a way of trying to get the best of both worlds so you have in the first round you you deal with the primary problem that america suffers from right so instead of having two parties and and the stable pattern is that in the primaries within each party when they're trying to figure out who's going to be the leader that you have the most extreme leftist on the Democrat side and the most extreme rightist on the Republican side, although not in a libertarian sense, in some other kind of sense. The most extreme voices determine the primaries, so you get extremists that are nominated for the presidential candidacy. Right. And then as soon as they're nominated, they by a very small group of people. Right. It's it's, the primaries. Then they reach to the middle. They turn, they completely flip-flop. They change their minds. Like Joe Biden in the primaries, correct me if I'm wrong, was sort of saying we're going to get rid of oil and coal and everything. Yeah, we're going to ban fracking.
0: We're going to ban fracking across the whole country. We're going to basically give, you know, uh, uh, illegal immigrants are going to get the same level of health care as native-born Americans from government benefits, all these
1: things. And then that was all just forgotten when he won the nomination. (laughs) Yeah, then he wins the nomination. He becomes a centrist. Donald Trump was unusual because he was pretty far off the whole time right <laughs> he was like uh, he was like locker up on the eve of the election, so he he broke them up uh, uh,
0: generally uh, uh, yeah i mean uh, so so if we remember back to before the Republican party became a very strange thing um Mitt Romney one of the reasons he managed to sink himself possibly with with hispanic voters is he said don't worry we're gonna we're, uh, during, to win the primary he was accused of being soft on on immigration and so his great strategy to tack to the right was to say we'll make life so terrible for them they will Self-deport. Yes. <laughs> it just, it what a line! <laughs> and and of course, when it came back Mitt. to uh, that guy's name know, is when, Mitt. <laughs> when it when it came back to you know the the, the actual election. And he had to uh sort of talk about his immigration line suddenly it was far more sensible it's sort of like middle of the road kind of trying to appeal to both sides sort of thing but no one really believed him because the one side said hey but you said they're all going to self-deport and the other side said well you know you just want to drive hispanic people out of the country whatever yeah so yeah it's <laughs> it's not a, it's, that's not a great way of doing it i think the french system is a bit better so just to clarify for anyone who's a bit confused the french have two rounds to their presidential election. Uh first basically where everyone gets to run and the top two candidates from that round face off in the last round and they uh and then you have you know the result of who actually gets to be president. So of course this time it was uh Emmanuel Macron and uh Marine Le Pen. How, how's my
1: accent on that one, Gabriel? Uh very good. <laughs> <laughs> but and, uh, uh
0: I, I, I saw I saw really- another I saw another great um, meme related to this. It said, I don't understand what's so difficult about the French election. These are the only two choices. And then it was a picture of a macaroon, macaroon, a little cookie, and a a pen, and like a a pen that you write with.
1: (laughs) Very stupid jokes. (laughs) Jokes. Uh,
0: Anyway, so it's quite interesting because, well, firstly, you know, Marine Le Pen is this really... She's, like, a pretty famous candidate, actually, um, with the sort of chattering classes around the world, even outside of the French world. And she's quite an interesting character because she took her party, which is, I think, it was called the National Front. And now she's changed it to the
1: National Rally. Uh, and it was, you know... Sort of... Le Front National and now uh, Rally National or something like that. Yeah. Right.
0: And 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 it's a party that was, I think, founded by her father or at least run for a very long time by her father. Uh Uh, Pierre-Ret Le Pen, I think is his name. And, you know, this was like the kind of, the French version almost of neo-Nazis in some ways. They kind of thought that Vichy France really had, like, quite a lot of good answers, and that Philippe Petain was the real hero, not Charles de Gaulle, and uh, that the, the greatest calamity in French history was the loss of its empire, and the arrival of Muslim immigrants, and all these other things. And she took this party uh, and she sort of completely transformed it to be something that was far more mainstream. Um, and as a result, she saw a lot of electoral success. But I just want to go over some anecdotes. So, of course, the only time I ever read about French politics really is when there's a French election. Because, And it seems like this, I think the last three or something have basically been really similar, which is, oh, Le Pen's going to win. Le Pen's going to win. And then she doesn't. It's like...
1: Yeah. It, before we get into get the it. anecdotes, a, sure. a, a, one note on history. So um, on William Scherer's account, he's uh, William Scherer is the sort of great historian who really wrote the first definitive history of the rise and fall of the Third Reich, which was the name of that book because he, he, he was the first guy to really be able to plow through all of the Nazi records. Goebbels' diaries and Goering's letters and <coughs> notes. <laughs> Uh, 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 of Hitler's. And he had been a war, respo- a war correspondent, often on the German side during World War II. Anyway, he really loved France. He was an American. And he also wrote the the rise and f- the fall and collapse of the Fifth Republic. No, the f- Fourth Republic. We're in the Fifth Republic now. Um, whichever republic, it was the republic that... that uh, <laughs> yes. They had so the many... That-
0: I think they were on the fact that we're on the Fifth or Fourth Republic says all oh, you really need to know about French politics, which is that it's quite uh, spicy. It's it's pretty spicy. But so he, also, sorry, you know, I just confused uh, Marine Le Pen's mom and dad. It's Jean-Marie is her dad, yes. and Pierrette Le Pen is
1: is, uh, is, is mom. her mom. So so on, just on the Le Front National side, the the issue there was that in the in the 30s especially so if if you go way back you know you've got napoleon you've got the 1789 revolution then you've got napoleon then you've got uh the monarchy again a competition between monarchists who want napoleons uh, who- bonapartists uh monarchists who want the orleans family Orleanians. You've got phalangists you've got Jacobites who are like uh, pseudo-religious but really quite sophisticated socialists like uh, back to the original revolution types. Right, right. Uh, and you've got them splitting into a sort of Menshevik and Bolshevik type thing. Um, and 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 then once the, once World War I comes and goes, you have a new sense of French pride because they did manage to hold the line. The, the 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 battle for Paris at the beginning of the war really was a pretty astonishing thing. There were so many different ways in which it looked like Paris should have fallen to the Germans. But it didn't. And and a lot of it was, you know, mythologized, but there really are these, you know, taxi drivers uh mustering up to ferry troops and grenades right. and old to the front and old ladies back. And there is and a, then, you know the the oh. this sort of the kind of spirit that defines 1789, this, 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 this epoch. Yeah, defining pride and also, of also
0: down. a very Parisian thing. And this is another kind of interesting thing that goes on in French politics is this uh, swinging between power being invested in Paris and then in the rest of the country, because there's often a tension between the two in a very real way. Uh, and of course, the battle of Verdun, which I think is still the most costly battle in human history in terms of lives, lost when the french army managed to uh, uh you know push the germans off of some uh, off of an attack on the on the fortresses around verdun and it was just like the most horrific grueling campaign in in human history and that is of course where philippe patton later collaborated with the nazis um got his got his stripes that was where he, yeah. he became a war hero and, and, and so that point, you know, yeah. if you win the battle of verdun you know you deserve at least some national pride for that that's like a good <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a huge thing, and so in a way, my sense is that the upshot is that the that the Orléanians and the Bonapartists kind of that idea goes away to to a certain extent, not completely. In fact, the but the point is that after World War One, le Front National emerges as a kind of attempt to get the different kinds of monarchists and republicans and radicals. Uh, To and radical back then in France really did often mean centrist, uh, to get the radicals and the republicans and and aren't the the center right party
0: at the moment called the radicals, or or was that last election? I
1: I think that's last election, but I can't, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. They they all wanted to get together to to hold back the 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 left front, um, uh, the socialists, the communists, the anarchists, and so on and so forth. And so, so the front, so the National Front, really is a, a sort of twenties and thirties term. And in the, th- the in the thirties, it's got some glorious moments, it's got some very inglorious moments. There's an insurrection. There's a sort of storming of the Parliament, uh, which is much a much bloodier affair. Lots of bullets exchanged. Uh, Shura happens to have been there, um, and lots of parliamentarians who really would have been hung, drawn, and quartered. Who who sort of smuggle themselves out by dressing up as all kinds of funny things to disguise themselves. Uh, some some who 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 are a bit braver who end up being escorted. I, I'm not sure any of the parliamentarians died, but quite a few people did die. After that, that was a key moment where the the National Front, the the the, the general here, I think the one that Nick's referring to, kind of ends up stepping back from it at the last minute and saying this is too wild and uh, therefore there's no a coup there's just a, a mob that ends up being unleashed on parliament there's a bit of a blowback from that leon bloom manages to get in there as a bit of a lefty but there is an increasing the uh, pro pseudo pro-nazi attitude because the grand question of foreign affairs is stalin or hitler and france has a long-standing positive relationship with russia most of the Russian gentry spoke French until about the 1820s when Pushkin and others started writing beautiful Russian poetry and there was a sort of fashionable shift. But uh, there, there there was still a lot of close sympathy. Of course, France and, and Russia had been on the same side in World War One. The idea of those powers surrounding the Teutonic militants and Germans. After
0: the Franco-Prussian War, that Russia would be its sort of protector from Germany because they realized that Germany was an up and coming power and they weren't going to be able to deal with it by themselves It's particularly because France's only other potential ally, which is Britain is a
1: naval power, not a land power, which, and there's only other power ally was right. Italy, which turned out to be. So in fact, one of the biggest problems is that Mussolini was the gateway drug. Fascism was the gateway drug to national socialism. It was, it was relatively easy to say, this Mussolini guy's not so bad, and he should totally be on our side. And the, and the French, you know, French foreign policy oscillates, but at times there really are these like secret deals signed between the French and the Italians to hold off German aggression. Uh, of course, yeah, Mussolini, Mussolini was, pretty was worried about Hitler a lot of the time. Yeah,
0: he was. He was pretty keen on putting together a front to knock out uh, uh, Hitler, and when that didn't really go anywhere, because like you know, appeasement and that sort of stuff was kind of the order of the day. He was like, you know what? Actually I'm gonna go into the other side and see what I can get.
1: Yeah. And this and none of this is to say that the that the that the French didn't have their their sort of standard European share or if not more of of anti-Semitism. The Dreyfus affair is is kind of one of the most defining moments in journalism because you have this 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 murder trial with this this espionage trial yeah was, um, uh,
0: a, a french officer who's was jewish is was accused of being a spy for the germans yeah
1: and isn't that amazing hey <laughs> they're like dude, anti-semitism gets manifest by saying this guy's too german uh anyway the and you've got a lot of for and against and it becomes it just for decades and decades it's this kind of split issue partly because not entirely That's not to say everyone who thought Dreyfus was guilty was anti-Semitic. I think that there were some like uh, good faith arguments to be made on both sides, but a lot of it does kind of end up becoming a litmus test for uh, whether you think right. Jews and isn't he like later just to the be... kinds of people that tell lies? Yeah, yeah, isn't
0: he? Isn't he later proven to be innocent? I, I seem to remember that there, that it was. Conclusively proven later at some point, or pretty, pretty likely it's, that he was. It's really, innocent.
1: really, really likely that he was innocent. There are some uh, sort of very sunset arguments that he might actually, but it. Let's just say it's perfectly clear that um, his conviction was was unjustified. He was definitely long wrongfully treated. Right, because even a guilty person can be wrongfully treated. In the sense that the justice system's job is not to put the guilty behind bars; it's to do so in a just way, following due process and so on. And that was not followed. Anyway, I, it seems to me like 95% likely he was he was not the the guilty party. But I remember some references to some sophisticated ex post facto arguments that might explain the dubious sides of things. I don't want to get into that. I think the the, the main point is that. That 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 French anti-Semitism, French right wing, uh national socialism, there, there there really is a there are sordid aspects to that history. There are there are sort of interesting, glorious moments in the Le Front National, more broadly history, not the anti-Semitic bits or the or the or the violent like let's take out our own parliament bits. But in the in the idea of 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 you know, let's just remember chauvinism, this idea of Men loving them, I don't know, being anti-women or, or people just loving their own country too much. The, chauvinism is a is a French word, and and it does cut both ways. The the great pride that French people have in being French, most of them, uh, in my experience, uh, also has has good substantiation. And anyway, that's why they're so make, good to make fun of. The point of that is all to say that the, the interesting thing about one of the interesting things about the competition between Le Pen and Macron. Is that Le Pen has been the every time candidate for a long time? And but always always the bridesmaid, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, right? And 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 that speaks to some aspect of French politics that just really is, in a sense, a continuation of a centuries-long story. And Mm on the other hand you have macron who really is the sort of textbook case for why you want a two-round presidential election system rather than a straightforward two-party system like you have in the uk in the us or maybe effectively in the uk and that's because he wasn't into politics and he just invented a new party on marsh um and this is like what americans often cry for they're like. We don't like both main candidates. Can't we have a third option? Can't some new different party? Right. Outside of and then they never alone. vote for the third ca- party candidate. <laughs> it's never going to get a majority. But in the French system, you don't need to get a majority. You just need to be in a field of candidates getting 20%, 22%, 17%. You just need to be one of the top two, getting 20 or 22%. And then you get to the final where the whole, you know, a whole bunch of people who voted against you are then going to figure out whether they're going to vote for you or for your opponent. Right, and, and we, we,
0: we almost saw that, this election. I mean, uh, that was quite interesting, is that the third place was this guy called Michelin, who's who is the sort of far-left candidate. And he, you know, a couple of points more, and he would have beaten Marine Le Pen to become the, uh, the, the, the guy who's running up against Macron. And then Macron, instead of fighting a campaign against the right, would have fought a campaign against the left, which... And isn't a
1: that and part of the reason I like Macron is that you can imagine him that he really is a centrist. Like the Economist has to call him a centrist uh, because he because he has to fight on both flanks in a very serious way. And it's right, like a
0: super Europhile, but he's also clashed with the uh, you know the, the the unions, and so he really kind of seems to do a little bit of everything.
1: Yeah, so in fact, I quite it, like that about him, and I and I think, but I think one of the difficult things for him. So he's, you know, he's the first uh, incumbent to win re election in over two decades. Very exciting, especially because when he first beat Le Pen, he really was this outsider businessman with a wife twice his age and a very sort of jockish, like doodly businessman look. It was like, it seemed seemed like he was not going to be re elected. Of all of the people who came in in that season, Bolsonaro, Trump. Boris Johnson he seemed like the guy who's 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 not going to stick around because he really just got voted for by a coalition of people who hate Marine Le Pen. Now Marine Le Pen is much more popular in France in general. Has done a has sort of continued this job of cleansing Front National of the worst sides of its history sort of holding on to the to the to the just francophone francophile um pride I'm not saying she's succeeded all the way, but I think she really has gone a long way to re-skinning the party. And yet he's managed to hold on to a win. And, my, and, my, and I think the interesting thing now is, in a way, to just hop forward five years. And my question to you is, what do you think happens in five years? See,
0: honestly, I don't understand French politics well enough to answer that question, but I do get the feeling that, you know, there's, there's kind of two ways it could go. One it's that Marine Le Pen, who's still relatively young, I think she's in her 50s now, uh, she runs again in the next election. She's once again comes in second or maybe even first in, in the first round of the voting, uh, which is what happened actually in the last election cycle, not this one that we just had. But I believe she beat Emmanuel Macron in the first round last time, and then went on to lose in a landslide against uh, against Macron in the second round. But so, you know, there's there's one version where she does that, and then she gets in, and once again, sort of she's just a little bit too beyond the pale. And I think, you know, we will get into that, her, her past history and her family's history a little bit. Yeah, those uh, are the anecdotes but, that I yeah. cut us
1: off with, and then <laughs> yes. went on like a quick 200-year uh, right we will- done. And-
0: we we will get into those um so there's yeah. you know when you've been in politics for a long time there's some good things about it which is that everyone kind of knows what to expect from you but there's also some bad things which is that everyone knows what to expect from you yeah. so you can't ever capture those kind of voters who are sort of cynically disenchanted with everything else like this is this is something that I think helped macron a bit is when you're new people project things onto you right they they don't know exactly what you're going to be like in office so they'll sort of imagine you to be a candidate uh, especially if you're quite skilled of their dreams, and then that uh, causes you to 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 do quite well. So so Marie Le Pen, you know, everyone knows what she stands for and what she does. Uh, so uh, you know, there's, there's in in a certain sense, the only way I think she can really win is if she's up against someone who is. Got a very big problem with themselves. So maybe she's up against someone on the far left, or maybe she's up against someone who's, uh, you know, who's like Macron but more watered down, like just just no, none of the. And let the, the let me pause you there.
1: Hmm. Let me pause you there. So it sounds like what you're saying is Marine Le Pen, uh, in the last election five years ago, 2017, in the in the final round, early round she came first. She got 33 percent. Macron got 27 percent. Whatever it was, doesn't matter in the final round she got like 33% and he got 68% right and this time she got 41 42% and he got 56% and he got 58 58% the so the 8 8% eight sort of swung from him to her so if you continue that trajectory from 33 to 41 42 just repeating the same kind of growth she'd be on 49 50 51 you know it's it's touch and go so, so she, there is a, there's a plausible world in which she could win. There's a plausible world in which she could lose. The question is, as you are saying, who is she going to go up against? If she goes up against a really compelling candidate, someone like Macron, it's probably the same kind of result as we saw now. But he can't be Macron. And I think that he's going to run up against the problem of, I don't know if this is just because I'm ignorant. It's probably just because I'm ignorant because I can't name the I can't even name the sort of ceremonial uh, uh, prime minister of France or president or whatever it is The, the 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 speaker of the House of Parliament. I'm really not deeply familiar with their position there. But as a super outsider, it just seems like the obvious problem is going to be the problem of succession. You've managed Macron has managed to create a brand new party. He's managed to be elected. He's managed to be with the coalition against Le Pen. He's managed to be re elected partly on his performance as a centrist, Uh, especially satisfying uh, older voters, I think. Like he won 80% of the vote above 65 years old. But they're all getting old and dying, and he can't run again. So there's a huge succession uh, gaping hole. And it seems to me like the most obvious thing to fill that hole is going to be. The person who came third or something like that uh, which is going to be a pretty sort of uh, elizabeth warren kind of either an elizabeth right. warren wonky lefty I thing mean, or like that's, a, or like a that's kind of Harman. a nightmare for france
0: right you've got a sort of nationalist uh far uh, you know to call it to call it far right is a bit sort of you know far right like she doesn't like immigration and yeah. she's kind of a bit eurosceptic but at the same time, she's pretty economically left. I mean, she's like to the left of, you know, everyone in the U.S. Uh, yep. by quite a ways. Yep. Uh, not just, you know, she'd be on the left of the Democratic Party in some ways in, in America uh, in terms of her economics. So, I mean, this is sometimes why I feel that the left-right thing can get you into a little bit of trouble. But
1: right, I only I like the left-right thing when it comes just to how big do you want government to be. I think right. I think everything else is is super duper confusing and that's why the two hands pulling the door uh closed right. gently and quietly that's why it doesn't work because we think of left and right as uh, all of these other things that get really confusing
0: so anyway. so my my understanding of this election based on my 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 limited understanding is that one of the reasons Le Pen did better this time is actually cuz she economically tacked to the left and she focused a lot on bread and butter kind of economic issues, cost of living stuff, the sort of things that have really annoyed the French, particularly with regards to, you know, some of the environmental stuff and taxes and things like that. that ha- yeah, ha- so ha- this ha-
1: is why it sounds weird to me that you call this left, in the sense that um, she seems to be... So, so, so when Macron came in, his first great achievement, in a way, was to tackle the unions. In France, you have a very socialized state... Uh, limited work hours, um, lots of lots of union power. And as a result, decades and decades down the line, from the 30 glorious years after World War Two, you have of of working class uh, magnificence. You have the situation where, uh, you know, people in the truckers union, uh, that are earning the same salary as the nurses, when they retire, are getting like three times larger pensions. Basically because the truckers are like able to pull off more regular and violent strikes than the nurses who are sort of a little bit worried about what's going to happen if they go like break everything. And so the the the, the, the groups that have done less strikes are getting less pensions. And Macron says this is rubbish. We're going to standardize the pension system. Insofar as you're being subsidized by the state, it's going to be directly indexed to what you were earning. So there's no more advantage for particularly robust and, and muscular uh, unions. And the unions were obviously very furious about that. And there was lots of violent protests. He just, he just handled it. Because, you know, as it turns out, like when Michael Jackson has a birthday or when he died or when fr- fr- France wins the World Cup or loses the World Cup, a whole bunch of people burn cars in the streets and dance on top of them to Michael Jackson songs. <laughs> That's just tradition. Okay, deal with it. And he dealt with it. He didn't get too nervous about it. But then came along the Paris Accords, and and there was this mixture between a, a new a new grumbling grew out of it, which is which is that Macron is too left in the sense that, standardly speaking, if you're super green, and you're willing to reduce the working class opportunities of of truckers and taxi drivers and so on and so forth by making energy more expensive in order for it to be more green, that's traditionally a left-wing kind of move. In America, for example, the right. greenies party. This is, this is what party. I would and call the, one, of one right. exception right.
0: To, right. of her economic policy where she's sort of on the right, which is that she thinks that wind energy is garbage. and yeah. she, wants, she wants nuclear. She wants nuclear, which I'm totally which behind. Which is right. I'm super <laughs> and, behind that. Yes, uh, but also yeah. Macron kind of wants nuclear,
1: which is great. As far as i can tell
0: right but when i say she's sort of on the left you know she doesn't like trade she wants to regulate the banking sector more aggressively she's opposed to privatizing public services she's opposed to any sort of reduction i think really to social security she wants to end speculation on international commodity markets Uh, she wants to kind of pull back from the from the uh, from the parts of the eu that i like as a sort of free-marketing guy. Uh, she wants to with, you know, abolish the International Monetary Fund and the World Trade Organization, things like that. You know, there's arguments to be had for some of those things, but for the most part, I think that let's just say that, um, you know, I've heard Joe Biden got down to sit down about uh, discussing what they actually thought the country should be like in terms of its economics. they probably agree on probably about 90% of things. It would just be on the energy green stuff that they'd go a little bit yes. Yeah, I was together. just po-
1: I was just pointing out that the the energy green
0: is the is the exception. Yeah, uh, so you know, I, I, so my view is that she basically kind of there were there were a couple of places which in the first round went very heavily this time for um, Mechelon, the, the 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 left candidate, or the sort of socialisty communist candidate, uh, and this time they went for Le Pen. In the second round, whereas last time they went for Macron in the second round, yeah. So to me, it seems that she's there's there's a portion of that sort of annoyed left, who are kind of annoyed by by Macron, who she managed to to win over this time. It's uh, a lot like all when,
1: the Bernie Bros who ended up voting yeah, Macron. exactly,
0: yeah. exactly. It's a similar kind of feeling. There's a sort of. Uh the kind of rust belty sort, you know, France has its own version of the rust belt sort of uh in the in the, the, the North, rugby playing. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. And and the far south, but the far south has always been the stronghold of the kind of anti immigrant uh right, which is which is very funny because it's also the very touristy area. So I was listening to a National Review podcast recently with um Charlie Cook and Kevin Williamson, they were talking about how, you know, most countries, when you go to the nice touristy areas, everyone is kind of a bit sort of, I don't know what the word for it is. They're, they're, they're hip. They're with the kind of mm-hmm. center left politics. You know, that's kind of the standard. But in France, the nice touristy areas People are lovely and welcoming, and all this. And then you talk to someone, and then they start telling you about how you know there's a plan to replace everyone to exterminate white people and replace them all with Muslims <laughs> or something
1: like that, <laughs> which is quite <laughs> not what
0: one would expect.
1: Uh, yeah, gruff, gruff. So, Although, so, dude, so, I gotta yeah. say, it, just since you brought it up, like Cape Town is definitely the most touristy part of South Africa, and if you scratch it a little bit below the surface. Oh, like, like working class, like, like Cape colored South Africans. Uh, you you can get some pretty hairy <laughs>
0: Rachel. Oh, sure. You. But, but to be fair, I think there's a lot of South Africa where people have strange views about certain things. Yeah. Um, anyway. So I, 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 as for the question of whether Le Pen's going to do it next time, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't, say that it's impossible but I think the chances of it are actually probably quite similar to the selection. I think it's probably a 40-60 thing 40-60 she loses
1: right uh, yeah you know, so I feel it. like 60-40 she wins um, because it seems like France is getting more and more used to her and I, I really think that um, it feels to me like Macron beat her part of the reason I say that is because I think his response to the war has been pretty satisfying and popular in France. France tends to be one of the more bellicose European EU countries. Uh, but also the one that's more friendly to Russia. They sort of have this complex,
0: yes. you know, they want to be the leaders of Europe, yes. but at the same time, they also kind of like the Russians. So they're in a sort of odd place when it comes to the war in Ukraine. They kind of, uh, it almost feels a little bit you know the impression i get is that the french feel a little bit like uh you know the Ernest Hemingway like for whom the bell tolls right i i, I read that book and i did i clearly maybe was too young for it because i didn't appreciate it properly but anyway there's uh, this is sort of like everyone is like heroically you know it's like a tragedy that they all have to fight each other but they have to because they just you know they're on opposite sides of forces and so there's this is kind of romance baked into it, and I, I almost feel they really like respect the each sort of, other. Yeah, right. The French sort of like both sides of the conflict in a weird way, which which is a very odd place to be. And Macron has done quite a lot to sort of walk that line, right? You know, he's supplied equipment to Ukraine and some pretty hectic stuff too, like uh, I think they just sent some motorized um, artillery, uh, which is considered some of the best in the world. But at the same time, you know, he's calling. Putin all the time and trying to sort of negotiate with them and sort of you know trying to 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 keep that door open for diplomacy. So yeah. He he seems no, to have done a good is, job of, of walking no the French line.
1: Yes. Whereas Marine Le Pen, no one is more compromised than her, in the sense that that in 2014, I think it was, the economist broke the story. I don't know if they broke it in the world, but I think they broke it in the English language, that Putin or Russia had been discovered um, to have somehow funded or financed uh, Le Front National before it was National Rally, Marine Le Pen's party, and that this was part of a more general uh, plan to break up Europe by funding Eurosceptics in Primarily in Greece, uh, Grexit was the huge question of the day, and that's partly why um, I think last time I might have re- recommended Yanis Varoufakis, um, uh, his his interview on on the war does a sort of hour-long spiel which which probably carries a lot of the the same sen- which carries a lot of the same sentiments that I have but part of what is interesting is that, you know the reason Varoufakis was condemning Putin as a as a war criminal so vociferously in the 2000s and and Russia more generally in the 90s and 2000s was not just because Greece has uh, uh, strategic uh, uh, challenges or conflicts with Russia more generally but specifically because <laughs> there was there was an Look, I'm I'm being cynical. The good reason to condemn the war criminal is that the war crimes are taking place. But the extra reason to do it extra loudly is that the, <laughs> Sorry, that was just a very funny line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the the extra reason to do it extra loudly is is that uh the Greeks were trying to break out of Europe. People like Varifagus were trying to tackle the troika. And um Get off the euro and 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 get out from underneath the German uh accounting book, as they saw it oppressing them. And that's exactly what Putin wanted, right? So they wanted to distance themselves to be like, no, we're not doing this because the Russians want this. We're doing this because we want it, but the Russians definitely did want it. There were allegations that they were funding some parties in Greece. Uh, there certainly was some kind of bank loan thing that happened with um, Le Pen's party in France and various other parties. You know, they were accused of funding alternative for Deutschland. Basically. You could just choose whatever party you don't like and say the Russians are funding it. And you might, you might, you might as well be right. Yeah, they, might and have, I think that, they
0: might have given some money to Brexit as well, I think. Or at least they were right. accused of doing so. Um I yeah. and I think there might have been some sort of funding that got somewhere to someone. Um, but you know, once you get into this kind of finance game, you can kind of start to connect everyone to everyone, which is one of the reasons why I don't like to play this game
1: too much. M- me neither. The point is that the first person to be hit with it was Le Pen in a big way. The first politician that got like named. And part of the reason that I think her name stands out around the world is not just that she, if you think about the comparison to Austria, where you had a party with sort of uh, historical connections to the Nazis and not very delicious and looked like very worrying. I remember the moment when Austria was nearly over – where that party nearly won in the election and it was a close-run thing and then they didn't win. But I can't remember the name of the person because it was never about the individual. It was always about the party itself. Whereas with Le Pen, my introduction to her really was, you know, this is Putin's candidate in Europe and this is why he's chosen her. It's because she has this – you know, she's she's uh, she's part of exactly the kind of uh, authoritarian, racy right, – so- so Nash, let me let me type of thing that's very awful. And I, I, I think that the 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 fact that the war happened right now and that most French people do not approve of Russia's invasion, and that Macron in the debate between the first round and the second round could really make the headline grabbing clash be about the war and about the fact that Le Pen is Putin's puppet. I'm pretty confident that that pipped him a couple of points. I feel like if it was still peacetime, she would have been able to dominate more on, on quality of living things, uh, cost of living things. He would have had less of the option to deflect that onto the Russians and then to say, and if anyone's too kind on the Russians, it's you. So I think that uh, when I say that, I think she's 60-40 rather than 40-60 in terms of five years down the line. I think it's because the war cost her a couple of points. And Macron cost quite a few more points because he did the war very well. And he's done actually quite a lot of other things pretty well. I'm not saying that he's a perfect dude, but I really have a lot of time for him. I think he's been one of the most admirable There's, leaders it's, it's, in the think, in the democratic world. And I think that he I think that a lot of French people have seen that. And I I, I struggle to see a successor coming along. And short well, of that, I think she's look, got
0: the odds just a little bit in her favour. The argument against your Macron point there is that he has had very low approval ratings for so pretty much his whole, uh, his no, whole but presidency. But that's how it
1: always is with the French. They like to right. This is Right, that's, that's the
0: counter-counter argument, which is that the French just never like their presidents particularly. uh <laughs>
1: <laughs> particularly in the system. In, in some cultures, to... people complain about their children. In other cultures, they brag about their children. I mean, they're always bragging about their children, but it depends. <laughs> There's like two different ways of doing it.
0: It's, and... it's, it's funny It's funny that you call the uh, Coralist because I'm reminded of a fantastic meme someone made of him. So I don't know. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are into politics have seen this before. It's it's considered. It's called the political compass, and it's an idea that you that all political positions that everyone can be placed on an axis. The up-down axis is um, authoritarian and libertarian, and then there's a left-right axis. And Which someone is more like found big government and small government. right big government, small government, and then there's a sort of like government must control everything. Uh, anyway, so. <laughs> Someone found various quotes from Macron and managed to build an entire political compass uh, to make it seem as though there's a version of Macron for every single point of the compass. So, for example, uh, Macron said, I'm a Maoist. A good program is a program that works. And at the same time, he said, uh, there is no French culture. He also said, in train stations, we meet those who have succeeded and those who are nothing. And he also, at the same time, said that Philippe Pétain is a great, was a great soldier, and of course he was the Vichy French collaborator.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> just I think Dude, there's on, a lot of people. on the pandemic. I really, I really resented him on the pandemic. I mean, yeah, he no, was, he, he was he, saying he was if you pretty... don't get vaccinated, you're not a real citizen. That yeah, like it was on his people, which is this wonderful <laughs> French verb to put in the dwang. on Yeah, I'm going to on you. <laughs> he was...
0: Yeah, he's uh, he he's often seems to be like he's he's copying um, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, well, in, in some
1: ways. ways that, but in some ways, I, th- I I believe I I read when he first became president that his um, his philosophy professor had be, who he had described as his sort of favorite at business school or at university through his career uh, was a big fan of uh, Ricoeur. I think the sort of uh, most reasonable of the French deconstructivists. In fact, it might be too much to call him a deconstructivist. In some ways, I think Recur is like the 20th century answer to the question, whatever most, happened to Weinger? Most
0: reasonable of the French
1: constructivists. Deconstructivists, De- I deconstructivist. Yes, it's so, mm. so, <laughs> and, and so the, uh, I, I've talked about Weinger before, but um, for a brief reminder, when when the when the romantic enlightenment when the enlightenment is becoming romantic it's a very important moment because that's really when a lot of political philosophy happens it's sort of after um anyway you know chaps like kant and hegel and nietzsche and schopenhauer are are writing the books that'll sort of build the the basement floor of so many libraries around the world. And they tend to have systems. You tend to have these great men who have arrived at a point in history where a person can offer a system. And, And Marx has a system too, and Freud has a system. And some of these systems are pretty, you know, there's like a kind of idea of a classical liberal system, which is hauled back up from ancient Greece. And But really that's not very fashionable. The real thing is to invent your own system, which is universal and fits everything that there is to fit. And it's a wonderfully seductive idea. Suddenly society is wealthy enough. It's got enough surplus productivity to not just sustain artists and entertainers, but to actually sustain system makers. And, uh, And it takes a guy like Weinger to say, you know, maybe the thing to do is like, think of these systems as a little bit like tools. So in this kind of situation, you want this system. In that kind of situation, you want that system. (laughs) And recur of all the deconstructivists is the most into kind of taking the car apart. But not taking the engine apart like you still have an engine <laughs> and a gearbox and then you can reassemble it in a different way right no, I, I, uh, I must say i'm not i'm not a
0: huge fan of of, of uh, french philosophy departments because it often seems to me you know that they they have given us both the khmer rouge and the uh, uh, and the iranian revolution
1: neither yes. <laughs> of which are regimes of super key on. No, no, they I, and 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 a lot of the worst aspects of, of, of American wokeism. Yeah, there's yeah. a kind of ennui nihilist, like, oh, we have come to the end of the road. We have champagne, we have blue cheese, we have greasings every Tuesday. It's so fantastic, it's boring. I cannot think of anything to do better than what has already been done. So I believe in nothing, I believe it just in whim and uh, uh, je ne sais quoi. Huh? And, uh, uh, and uh, this is this is then, the funny like, thing is
0: the the, sort of the French seem far more resilient eaters. to their own like silly philosophers than the rest of the world, like the French seem to deal with them far better than anyone else. They like take the good bits and expel the bad bits far more effectively, I think, than a lot of other
1: countries. <laughs> I don't know, man. All of those, car, you know, from sixty eight, there's like a tradition of like burning. The, the cars every time you win or lose, and and having riots so with the people who don't vote. That's that's got nothing that to
0: that's do. That's got. I, I don't think that's got to do too much with those philosophers. Because I will I remind you that when Louis the Fourteenth, who I think is still history's longest reigning monarch, was five or something, and he was recently king, he was fleeing through the streets of Paris as as rioters shot slingshots at his royal carriage. Uh, the french let's just say that it is it is a very old tradition in france
1: no, to no write i agree about the i agree but, but but it was but after world war ii it sort of became unfashionable for a while and then it it was one of the ways that it became hip again uh obviously it was the unions but one of the big ways it became hip again was the was the intellectuals um the sort of nihilist so, intellectuals
0: before before i forget let's let's just talk a little bit about where Le Pen comes from because she is a very interesting character and she's got this incredible drama in her sort of personal story which I I think fascinating and it, it's one of these things that kind of you know it makes her whole political career in a lot of ways like so many French great French politicians it feels very French in a certain way so her dad is this guy called uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen and he's uh, in the army kind of in the 50s after the after the second world war and he he's pretty keen on keeping algeria because this was the great crisis in in I think sort of post french uh politics is um the top bit of algeria the coast of algeria was considered part of metropolitan france like as french as paris right that was mm. the official kind of role of the government and yet um, there was this Big sort of independence movement there, and they fought a pretty bitter war against each other, the Algerians and the French, uh, for control. And eventually, the French decide to withdraw, and this really upset uh, quite a lot of people on the right of Charles de Gaulle, who is the sort of great uh, French statesman of that period. And so Marine Le Pen's uh, dad, he was, a, I, I believe, a soldier or at least an intelligence officer in in uh, military service. During that time, uh, there's allegations that while he was there, he may have even tortured Algerian dissidents in prison. He gets out and- constant interrogation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And anyway, he he gets out, and he's very dissatisfied with all of this. And he he ends up working for the far-right candidate in the 1965 presidential election, who doesn't do very well, gets sort of 5% of the votes. Who, who, and he's and one of his big issues is he wants to rehabilitate the French who collaborated with the Nazi regime, right? Um, and this is where the quote from Marie Le Pen's dad comes from: uh, "Was Charles de Gaulle more brave than Philip than Marshal Pétain?" Mm. Uh, this isn't so sure. It was much easier to resist in London than to resist in France. Mm. The problem with that is that the Vichy French didn't do that much resisting. But anyway,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so, so yeah.
0: So he goes on to then in the 70s form the Front National, which is like calling back to that movement you were talking about, you know, in the sort of interwar period. And initially, you know, it runs in the 1974 election, it gets basically no votes, it's like less than a percent 0.74. Also, in that year, because it's France, his flat gets dynamited and no one knows who did it to this day, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Anyway, he, he goes on to become basically the most popular far right French politician. He eventually makes it, I think, to the second round. To he 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 does quite well in one of the presidential elections, but ultimately he gets completely crashed by uh, the sort of more centrist candidate. Was it uh, Jacques Chirac? Right in the right in the, in the early two thousands. Anyway, so uh, he's getting old now. I mean. He's still alive today, but he's like, I think he's 90-something, 93 or something. And his daughter, who's been active in the same party, uh, uh, comes to take over. But before I get to his daughter, let me just talk a little bit about his wife. So he he was married to a woman called uh, Pierrette Le Pen. And they had a very nasty divorce in the 80s. And... Um, he refused to pay alimony, he had three daughters with her, and he he refused to pay alimony. He thought you know he said he was interviewed and asked, you know why aren't you getting sorry in the seventies I got divorced. He was asked, you know why don't you pay your wife alimony?" and he said, if she needs money, she only has to clean ah uh, and then le pen's ex wife decided this is Marie le Pen's mom that she was going to humiliate him and and annoy him by posing naked for Playboy magazine in France under the title Madame Madame Le Pen naked doing the cleaning.
1: Just what thinking. a... Before Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, there were the Le Pen. Oh, 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 man. Of
0: course, this is on the sort of far right. The the part of French politics that's got like monarchists, Catholic traditionalists, sort of mm. neo-Nazi types, uh, old imperialists all together. And so this is just really, you know, you can imagine how sort of biting and annoying this must be. And Marie Le Pen actually probably same- condemned her mom too. She said quote today after these photos we can no longer consider her as our mother it is worse than really losing her a mother is part of a secret garden not a public dump
1: Whew. i think that's, <laughs> that's spicy i mean can politics. You I, that is I, drama oh dude it really does it it sends me one of the one of the i mean jean luc godard made uh, oh, some of the greatest cinema uh of that era eh hey? But um, Fellini with the Italians, it's also very twisted, but it is ultimately more uh, bouncy and joyous. And the French is just like really tortured and weird. And, but Gwen <laughs> Wells uh, had that movie about the beautiful woman who uh, was married to a very successful wealthy guy and they were just always going on a holiday and wearing cashmere and looking delicious and you know being grand bourgeois and she couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, so she decided to become a prostitute in the middle of the day, not for money, but just so that she could still feel alive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Belle de jour. it's uh, it's it is it's not every culture that pulls it off quite like the French, uh, right?
0: Right, no, exactly. <laughs> so of course the family drama doesn't end there, because as as you know, uh, Papa Le, Le Pen is getting old. Uh, her, his youngest daughter, which is of course Marine Le Pen, decides that uh, she's going to step up to the plate and take over the party, the Front National and she takes it over and within a few years she has expelled her own father from the party for making anti-Semitic remarks, or well, in this case I think specifically uh, denying the Holocaust
1: Yeah, um, Marine Le Pen's which I thought is great. I mean, isn't that, I really respect that
0: yeah, yeah, no, this is this is one of the reasons why she's turned her party into much more of a mainstream force. Uh, she <laughs> she is, look, her father comes from a tradition which, as far as I can understand, believes that the history of the universe is but a footnote to the history of France. <laughs> yes, which... yes.
1: <laughs> First, so, uh, it was the tricolour, and then sometime <laughs> after that was a big bang, and uh, yes. you know, the froggies <laughs> were bouncing in the little pond and whatever, but like, First, there was
0: <laughs> So, so she works really hard through the sort of 2010s to kind of rehabilitate the party. She uh, takes sort of more. She she takes like death, the death penalty, for example, off of the the, the party's list because uh, Front National was in favor of that. She softens on the sort of um, retaking <laughs> Algeria and expelling all the Muslims and all these other things. She's still, you know, very anti-immigration. But she's sort of a bit softer now. She focuses a lot more on these kind of sort of social services, lefty cost of living things, subsidies for people to 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 cover their expenses, that kind of stuff. She kicks out a lot of the neo-Nazis, the Pitanists, the sort of people who have let's just say, who haven't gotten over the Second World War, of yeah. which there are there are on that part of the French political spectrum, there seem to be quite a lot of. Yeah. Uh and uh, uh, she even, for a time, dated um, a French Algerian uh, Jew, who then was a senior member in, in the front in the national rally. Although, as the uh, French
1: say, just a Frenchman. Yeah, it's a wonderful <laughs> right. thing about for France is they don't they're not into like African American, Indian American. You know, it's not Indian French, Algerian French. The official line.
0: Is well, French- well, this is. This doesn't has been always the work out
1: of, that way, but it's like this nice has been life.
0: the allegation against her 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 father's party in particular and her party as well is that they don't accept that view of Frenchness, and so she you mm. know in, in her personal life seemed to kind of accept Be that. Walking the one walk, of the reasons, yeah. right, and yeah. this is one of the reasons why she's managed to actually uh, uh turn her party into possibly as you say you know a real contender for the presidency mm. in the next election mm. uh behind her so a very interesting character and clearly a skilled politician. But I do get the feeling, you know, uh, have you ever watched the movie Mean Girls? It's yeah. one of the great classics. Uh, the the this villain character at one point says to one of her minions, stop trying to make fetch happen. Fetch is never going to happen. As her, her friend is trying to introduce this word fetch. And it's this yeah. kind of idea that if it hasn't stuck the first couple of times, mm it loses some of its ability to catch fire. And I I, I do feel like Le Pen might be in that position. Uh, She's very vulnerable to whatever the next big thing is. And, you know, politics often does produce the next big thing.
1: Yeah, I just, I, I hear you on that line. It just strikes me that, from where we are sitting, we might not be hearing all the cheers from people who saw her sit on 33% last time and on 42% this time. Like if I, the, the way I try and analogize it is to the politics that I know, if the DA gained nine percentage points between two presidential elections, like in the last one, they got like 21, if they get 30 in 2024, there's going to be a lot of people who say, ah, this party's been number two for forever, for as long as South Africa's ready. Right, and it's still, well, it's still not in government.
0: It's still not the biggest it's still not
1: in government. And look how useless the ANC are. The DA is bound to be overtaken by a Mashaba or a resurgent IFP or a something. You know, I think, that, I think that that will be a sound argument. I think that there will be good reason to 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 consider that. But I also think that if, if the DA goes from twenty-one to thirty, there's gonna be just so many people who are over the moon because they because they started liking the band when it was at two percent and they're still around and now it's it's at thirty percent. And I think that for no,
0: I do, I do hear that, but there is one difference.
1: For a, which for is a that candidate to gain nine, eight points is is pretty. Yeah, it's like uh, to be sniffed at. Momentum that it does. Her pitch will be, I'm gaining momentum, and they don't. And they had Macron, and they don't have anything after them. Anyway, I mean, you know, I think we're pretty close. You're saying sixty forty, I'm saying forty sixty, whatever it is. I think we're in the we're in the same zone.
0: So so I do I do want to say though that. Uh one of the differences between those two is, you know, when the DA in South Africa gets nine percent more, it's nine percent more seats. The Front National has not done great in legislative elections. Uh they do seem to be tied up in in France. And you know, when you're in that when you're in a presidential race at the end of the day, there is no consolation prize.
1: Yeah. There is there is only uh although it's <laughs> a of, of defeat. I, I would say it kind of goes the other way. Um because if you get a little bit of power, you can often get a lot of blame uh, for everything else that's going wrong.
0: Uh, well, yes. in, in some municipal governments, I think that may be very well true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in South Africa. But that is that is a topic for another day. Okay, so we've gone over an hour now um, and we've sort of meandered our way through Frenchness. Uh, do we have anything to say more on this? Um, and then I'm going to drop the big news on you
1: drop us drop us the big news
0: so according to a headline on twitter from the independent twitter has accepted elon musk's bid to buy the company
1: this was tweeted
0: uh an hour or 2 hours ago so this is fresh fresh news yeah uh, so uh, you know, we talked about that, I believe, last last episode. Correct?
1: We talked about it last yeah. episode, just as the as his deal had been announced, like a couple two hours after the deal had been announced. Unfortunately, the show only aired several days later. Uh, luckily, well, no, it was out was... on the
0: podcast apps, but it was only on the uh, was it called the the Daily Friend website a couple yeah, days later. Yeah,
1: yeah. So so anyway, be be that as it may. Um, we have covered it. I think it's. I think it's a great test for for a kind of theory about quirk. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. I mean, we. I think we discussed it at length through the years. the The theory that 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 the way societies grow. Is largely by putting one foot in front of another, and that most of the work we do is try desperately to to achieve that. Unoriginal ideas, completely tried and tested. You know, here's the warning: if there's an uncooked egg and you drop it on the floor, and the floor's made of concrete, it's going to crack. If you expropriate property without compensation you're going to reduce the number of people that have sustainable jobs and if you limit your corrupt government you're going to have more growth and a better opportunity to keep the bits of government that are left in such a state that they can become proud and effective these are very much uh you know the the sort of crawl then walk walk then run kind of ideas but that's not everything it takes you also need the odd moment of madness the odd quantum leap that somehow makes perfect sense in the rearview mirror but doesn't isn't the kind of thing you could have trained to do you know maths you can you can break this down to a p versus np problem one of the millennial challenges you know there really is a way of thinking about things that that make sense once you know the problem and the solution together but when you just know the problem the solution is really unobvious um i think that those kinds of problems are very difficult to solve by ordinary market mechanisms of aggregate supply and demand uh because well, it's just obvious. You're looking for something unique, where supply and demand is about finding the appropriate price point for bottles of water or Coca-Cola or shoes or, or batteries. And it's very difficult for governments to do it because when governments get quirky, when governments start trying to engage in quantum leaping, exactly what that means is that the dudes with the guns are also doing magic. No, it's not a... <laughs> Not since Peter the Great has that been a good idea. <laughs> or maybe the American Founding Fathers. You know, Benjamin Franklin's like sort of probably smoking a joint and inventing new ways of, of, uh, of, of spectacles <laughs> being sort of concatenated into, into slightly psychedelic uh, kaleidoscopes. Okay, but it's really not something you want to do very often. So who does, who's going to do the quirk? And, and, you know, artists, uh, creatives, they, they get to do some conceptual stuff. But in terms of actually experimenting in the real world, you need huge amounts of resources. And that's one of the great things about billionaires is that they get to do the quirk. And the thing about the quirk is just like uh, all, all actual um, quantum leaps, usually it doesn't work out. Usually it's a lot of hype and it's it's either not really a step forward or it's actually many, many steps backwards. Uh, but now and then it's a real step forward. So I think this is one of the great quirk tests for uh, the, the, the the most talked about challenge of the 21st century, which is how do we talk to each other and listen in a technologically refabricated universe where we're talking is for free and listening costs money a lot of the time uh which just seems to incentivize noise and fury and bitterness in the long run. Escapism too. Uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you will bugger it up. Uh and I yeah, anyway, we discussed our scenarios. If he brings if the first thing he does is bring Trump back, it's gonna be it's gonna be unfortunate. I wonder if that's the if that's been the negotiating point in the background, effectively. And the idea oh, is he'll be like free speech from here on out but anyone who's been banned is still banned so i, I see, feel like that's the most likely modus for compromise i see the
0: headline has just been changed to twitter expected to accept elon musk's bit to buy company as early as monday but uh, uh, the 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 even the sort of tentative news has caused what what the should we say? Share um, price. <laughs> we it it's it caused it's caused what, what always happens on, on Twitter, um, whenever anything happens, because Twitter is a place of perpetual outrage, right? Um someone someone on Twitter once described say, Twitter's like the lottery where the objective is not to win. Because if you win, everyone on the website will shout at you and call you names for twenty-four hours and then forget that you exist. Um <laughs> so today's version of Twitter insanity is uh, I'm just seeing it now as I scroll over the timeline. Someone took a picture of a newspaper from the 30s that says Hitler named Chancellor. And then they said, Rest in peace, Twitter. And there's lots of people talking about how they're going to leave the platform forever, and how it's the end of civilization, and how billionaires are controlling our our, please, our free speech.
1: Please let it happen. <laughs> That's the good, hopeful scenario. Let let there be another Twitter so that it can be like Celsius versus MTN versus Vodacom, so we can. No, of course, and, and
0: and we did talk about this last time, but like. <laughs>
1: Yeah, dude, it's totally predictable that that's how they respond. The only question now is: Is this like all the people who said, "Oh my god, Donald Trump's president. He's not my president. I'm moving to Canada." And then they there keep tweeting about how they're moving to. Yes, wasn't it? The, the exception who that proves the rule.
0: Yeah, who who was it? I can't remember, it was someone who moved to Australia. I think the only celebrity who moved the country after Trump.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tanahisi Coates rude the fact that he already moved before Trump to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so that he couldn't really, he was ahead of the curve. David Sedaris too, but for different reasons. David Sedaris much more sweetly. Anyway, the point is that uh, that that it, it might it that I don't think any of them are going to leave. Really, very few are going to leave. The question is, will they set up new accounts in a new universe so that they can duplicate? And that's that's all you need. You just need people to have Gmail on the one thing and Outlook on the other thing, so that it stops mattering whether you've got Gmail or Outlook because they both kind of have to end up being the same thing to not lose market share to each other. I think, yeah, I I think the most, that's what excites me is the prospect of it just becoming boring. What 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 a relief that would be. We'd be able to, you know, get back to the interesting stuff.
0: I've just seen a tweet that says, I see some libs saying that if Musk buys Twitter, it's their duty to make it as terrible as possible around here. I regret to inform them. That's already happened. But Mm. it's nice to have goals. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Twitter Twitter is where nihilism goes to live. Um, Okay. All right. Uh, So we're a little bit early now, but I think uh, we should maybe try and call it. Uh, Do you have any recommendations for listeners today?
1: You go first.
0: So I'm going to recommend something. Uh, It's it's a channel called um, Mark Felton Productions. He's a guy who does uh, videos about mostly the Second World War, but occasionally some other stuff. And... He is kind of interesting because he's a great example of how internet sort of hysteria can get out of control. So he's got a pretty big history channel, 1.6 million subscribers. Um, And he was accused by a Reddit post by an anonymous person who linked to things that have since been deleted of plagiarism. (laughs) And that rumor I have seen pop up over the whole internet based off of the thinnest thinnest of, of proof. And yet, despite that, uh, his it doesn't seem to have affected him because the videos he puts out are great, actually. Um, a lot of them are, you know, there's um, he covers a lot of topics right now. He's been covering stuff about nuclear attack preparations, uh, some stuff about Ukraine. But a lot of the things he, he does his videos on is like, you know, the last panzer tank created by the German army and where it ended up. Or... Uh, you know, the strange bomber that crashed in the Arctic and is still there. Uh, lots of kind of odd little pieces of history that, that people forgotten about. For example, one of his best videos, I think, is actually on a plan to use a British Lancaster bomber to drop the second atomic, or the first atomic bomb. Um, originally, the Americans didn't have a plane that was, like, they thought would be very good at dropping the atomic bomb. And the British had their very big Lancaster bombers. And so he did a video about how the original version of the Manhattan Project was uh, actually going to utilize a British aircraft to to do the bombing and a British flight crew. And how (laughs) basically the Americans got so offended by this that they accelerated development of their, uh, I think it was the B-29 or whatever the one they used to finally drop the bomb uh to make sure that they would have the equipment to actually to actually do it so that they could claim all of the engineering credit themselves. But anyway, British guy, interesting guy. Um check it out. It's Mark Felton Productions. I'll put a link in the in the channel notes.
1: Anyway, do you have any any recommendations? Um 12 Angry Men.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I that is a great movie. Uh I, I, there's a there's a so you know we've joked before about um a, a silly idea for a legal system I have where everyone has to where where, where everyone gets fired into the sun at the end of the day.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, one of the precursors to that is before people are on the jury, they have to watch Twelve Angry Men. Because it's great.
1: It's very good. I mean I do wonder I wonder it's tricky because it can also make you, um, uh, there, there's, there's something potentially kind of productive about that, Uh, but without getting into too much of it, uh, yeah, I think I, I think I I watched it last weekend. I think for the third time that I've seen it, sort of once as a student and then sort of once on an airplane. Nope. Yeah, once in between and well, then and then most recently, and and it was quite different each time. Uh I can't imagine watching it on an aeroplane. That was the first time. That was really good. That was kind of the best because uh I, I I find airplanes are just about the best place to watch movies. Um but be that as it may, I, I, I think what changed is that on on the rewatch, it's 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 difficult to get quite as emotional um, as one does in the first goes. But it's very satisfying to see a movie that's left enough Easter eggs around and played enough with form and structure that it keeps getting more interesting as you get deeper yeah, uh, into it.
0: And quite frankly, a lot of old classic movies, you know, they might have been groundbreaking or, or fantastic movies when they came out because they innovated in cinema in all these interesting ways. But when you watch them today, it's a bit sort of like, yeah, okay, it's fine, but you know, I don't quite get the magic of when this movie originally came up. But I think to, Twelve Hungry Men has, because it's sort of so minimalistic in its uh in its sort of scope, you know, it's just a bunch of dudes in a room. <laughs> It's, it's maintained a kind of uh, timelessness. Mm. That, that, yeah. that, uh, that when I watched it for the first time, I was surprised at how well it held up.
1: Which, uh, well, which I think it's, I think it's of one of the most movies. theatrical movies that there are in that, in that simple sense. That, that 90% of the special effects are the kinds of things you have in a theater. It's act it's it's human beings using their costumes and their voices and props and spacing and staging and dialogue to take you on a journey. It's very because the conceit is that you sit in that room the whole time. Uh, the, the, the the kinds of special effects in movies that usually age and date in a, in an obvious way are are not really all that present anyway so I was very I just stumbled back onto it while I was sort of alone on a Sunday night waiting for something and I I was really delighted uh I was I, I was I felt even more uplifted I think than than the first couple of times that I saw it
0: yeah. excellent stuff all right I think we're going to call it there um so thank you everyone and as I always say Keeps the flag for liberty flying. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>